This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, Glenn and Sully run the show and bring in Duncan Moore to talk about one of the best products you may not have heard about here at NetApp, Storage Grid. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Glenn Sizemore, filling in for the one and only Justin Parisi, who decided to ditch today to go watch Star Wars. You know, I got my Star Wars fix in last night. I was I was at the opening show at one of the movie theaters here uh, in in Raleigh. So, yeah, it's it's a great movie. If anybody hasn't seen it yet, uh, you have until January first, and then spoilers are on the table. Just just. To let you know, so. so so wait, this isn't our our Force Awakens spoiler cast. I mean, I won't do it on the podcast, but you know, just for those of you who see me every day, everybody dies. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, joining me today uh, in absence of Justin is is uh, my own personal supervillain, of course, uh, the one and only Sully the Monster, Andrew Sullivan. Andrew, how you doing, bud? I am fantastic. Like I said, got to see Star Wars last night. Uh, looking forward to a great podcast today with. Uh, great guest and you know christmas is a week away i was i was under the mistaken impression that it was on saturday this year and uh john spinks corrected me this morning so i had to real quick not that i shouldn't have already done this a long time ago order an extra gift for my wife uh that that i thought i had an extra day or two to do yeah for the listeners at home you may you may be sitting here looking at your your itunes feed going wait a minute it's january what's going on here well, uh, th- welcome to the beautifulness of our life. <laughs> you know, um, we, 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 uh, one of the big goals of this show uh, is to bring the experts from NetApp to, to go into product ops and engineering, R&D, the office CTO, the various different elements that uh, we as TMEs have access to that, that you know, our customers and partners at, at, at large do not. Uh, one of the people that we have been chasing heavily for the better part of four months, uh, actually had an opening on his calendar because we were getting ready to go on a Christmas break. Yeah, we, we were chatting before the show started, and he made a, a, I don't know if it's a good or a bad or maybe a little bit sad uh, uh, observation in that he hasn't spent three days in his own bed and something like three months. So uh, welcome to the show, Duncan. Uh, great to have you here, and please uh, introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Uh, thanks. Uh, yeah, this is Duncan, and... Um yeah, it is bad, the whole travel thing. It gets old quick. So uh, I'm Duncan Moore. I'm with NetApp for, I'm in my 17th year now. I'm here out of RTP, and I lead the product management and tech marketing functions for our object storage solutions, Storage Grid Web Scale. You, you know, one of my favorite stories about you, Duncan, was uh, when we were in the, uh, the T3 over in the EBC here one day, and somebody asked you about your iPad. Because on your iPad, on the opening screen, it says MFP. And they said, well, what, is, what does that stand for? And the story behind that, I, I thought, was just, was just great. And it explains a lot of this, uh, why, why you're on the road so much, why you're such a busy man. And, and am I allowed to say what it stands for? Well, can, you, may, you may want to leave out the middle one. <laughs> you know what? Go ahead. Go for it. Uh, we, we, we have editing. I can clean it up. Yeah. Um, so it's a screensaver. It's on my iPad. And it's a reminder to me that um, 
object storage and storage grid web scale in particular. It's my freaking product. And, uh, you know, and the point of that is to say, if I don't care enough to really push and make sure people understand and that it's being looked at in the correct light, then then it's really no one else's responsibility. And, and, and that's not to say I'm the only guy carrying the torch, right? I mean, we have a great team of SE specialists and and product managers. But, you know, some days, and I know everybody who's listening and all you guys, we just get buried and overwhelmed. Yeah. And we need to remember, you know, why we're here and what we're doing. And my job right now is to make sure people understand that we have this great tool and what we can do with it. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that's fantastic. And uh, since I've heard you say that, I've I've thought that to myself on more than one occasion. Uh, you know, I, I'm... I, I do containers, right? And that's sort of a new area for us. There's not a lot of uh, other people who are, there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of people who I guess are helping, but at the same time, uh, yes, I understand that sentiment. And uh, it's been very valuable uh, over the last several months. So uh, Duncan, you mentioned that you do, well, Storage Grid, your product management, your technical marketing inside of Storage Grid. So Storage Grid WebScale is our object-based storage system, and I kind of wanted to start at the beginning here, and Glenn, please uh, jump in at any point in time if I uh, step on myself here, but can you can you tell us about, well, what is object storage? Because I think it's different in a lot of ways than uh, uh, most storage administrators are used to. Yeah, it's, it's very different, um, and, you know, to the, to the length of time I've been at NetApp, it Talking about object storage with people is very similar to back in 99 when we'd go talk to people about NAS. You know, mm. these conversations tend to be the first half of the conversation is, hey, by the way, there's this cool new thing. It's called NAS. Let me tell you about it. And then the second part of the conversation is, and by the way, we make the best solution in that space ever, right? Yeah. And, and that's kind of the way these, a lot of these conversations are happening around object storage right now. You know, there's there's executives out there that are hearing all about this stuff, and that you know what the heck is it? Um, so, I'll give you I'll, I'll give you my description of object storage to uh, you know a high level executive person that might not necessarily have their hands on a keyboard uh, other than maybe Excel spreadsheets kind of thing, and then uh, you know we can dive in wherever you guys want to go. But um, I. I tend to look at it in the terms of how do applications interact with it is mm-hmm. one thing. And then a couple of key differentiators around object storage that fix things that are breaking in in certain use cases. It, it, and it's going to come out of this too. It's not for everyone and it, it's not this you know, universal solution that's going to solve the world's IT problems. There are specific places it's the only thing that'll fix things. And yeah. there's other places I see people trying to put it in there just because it's the new thing and it clearly is not what you want to put in there. Um, so the highest non-tech way to explain it is uh, to talk about managing millions and billions of files, right? That's a problem in a lot of workloads. Yeah. Um, and the analogy we use is this parking garage analogy, and I'm sure you guys are going to you know, roll your eyes and edit this out because. Oh no 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 no! no. I, I I actually remember this analogy from the first time we had you on the podcast, uh, and and it has ever since been how I describe object storage. I think I think it's a brilliant analogy. So so please do continue. All right. So since this podcast is, we've now time traveled, and I think we're in in late January now, right? So we're in like getting ready for the Super Bowl. Yep. Um, let's imagine that you've flown to the Super Bowl location, which I think is actually by the home office 
Davis this year, right? I think it's in San Francisco. Yep. Or, I'm sorry, Santa Clara. Come Levi. on, Tommy Brady. You can yeah. do it. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But anyway, <laughs> so you, you uh, fly to the Super Bowl. You rent a car. Um, you go park in, you know, where, where there should be lots of parking garages. You go to the game and you come out. And you got to remember, where is that parking garage I parked in? What level did I park it? What section of what level? You might even get to the point where you go, what color is my rental car, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's kind of analogous to in these massive file environments, you spend so much time building these elaborate file structures, sitting on a multitude of file servers to find places to put things. You're not going to create a directory and put five billion things in it, just as you're not going to create one unlabeled parking lot and put a million cars in it, right? Yeah. Now, that's kind of the file approach of parking. Now, the object approach of parking is to look at parking as a service. So you think valet parking, right? I drive up in front of the Super Bowl. I hand some guy, hopefully a valet, uh, the keys to my car. He gives me a ticket back. That ticket is a unique identifier for my car. The transaction's done. After this, I don't care. I go to the game. I come back out. I hand him my, my ticket, and I get my car. Right, it's a it's a service for parking, and you know, long as it's not like uh, you know Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and it didn't go streaking out the back of the garage, you know, there's an implied sense of durability and responsibility on that person, which is similar to a, an object store. You can think of an object store as a data service to the applications. It's responsible for maintaining the durability. It's responsible for deciding where to put it. You don't have to know any of that stuff. All I need is my unique identifier to get it back. So with that, you know, the, and, and, and admittedly, this is a bit of a softball, but, but for the listeners at home, uh, why isn't object storage just appropriate for everything then? Because that's clearly better than me having to remember where I put it. Yeah. So I think let me extend the analogy a little bit, and then we'll come back to okay. show you that by doing some of these other great things it can do, you take away some capabilities that you might just take for granted with things like file-based and block-based storage. So... So if we take that valet analogy a step further, like what if I could drop my car off at the valet at Raleigh-Durham and then I could fly somewhere, San Francisco, and hand them my valet ticket. And pick your car and up. And pick my car up in San Francisco. I mean, that's crazy. But that's object storage, object storage as well because object storage tends to be we, – we talk about a global namespace. And most of the people who are listening are very familiar with global namespace within – uh, how we talk about cluster data on tap. That global namespace is tied to a geography, right, or to a, you know, a single data center. Yeah. You know, we, we've extended that recently, of course, with uh, Metro Cluster, so that you can be within, what, 200 kilometers, I think. Yep. Um, but you can't have a namespace that extends, you know, across 16 data centers around the world, which is what Storage Grid WebScale can do as an example. So that, that taking my valet ticket anywhere I land and handing it to someone and getting that thing that I stored. That's exactly what you can do with object storage. Now, to your question, what, you know, why can't you solve the world's problems with it? One of the things you do to have this great global namespace is object stores uh, don't have updates, modifies. Objects are put in and they're taken out. So essentially, they're kind of this immutable store. Yeah. And by doing that, you don't have to do things like distributed locking, right? Um, if you've ever worked in the database industry and worked with distributed lock management and stuff, that is just a colossal pain. And when you start spreading things out, and you know this is 
you know, a lot of the reasons why metro clusters go, you know, 200 kilometers and not further. It's it's not a limitation of NetApp. It's the speed of light. Yep. Because you have to, everybody has to be coordinating. When you're this geo-distributed, immutable, write or read only kind of namespace like that, it enables you to do some really cool things like spread the namespace out across the world. So there's 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 lots of questions swimming in my head, like how do we provide you know or, or avoid split lane type scenarios and all of that. But uh, I think we can touch on that in in a little bit. But uh, you know I, I think it's there's two things that I want to uh, uh, ask about. Right, one objects are retrieved as a whole. You can't get a portion of an object. That that's not true. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, some object stores, that's probably true. Um, NetApp, um, we support uh, byte range reads, as an example. So, you know, if you think about one of, the, one of the great use cases for object storage are things like distributed media, you know, asset yeah. containers, right? So yep. think about if, if I'm a uh, movie production or entertainment company nowadays... Um, you create these massive things, right? I mean, they're shooting in 5K and 8K now. So you end up with these massive things. Um, you never change those, right? Once yeah. those things are created, they're essentially immutable. You'll do all these transformations of them, right? You know, transcoding into different, you know, so I can watch it on my iPad with that great screensaver or whatever. Um, but the the original origin thing doesn't change. So having copies of it in an object store or a copy that's available anywhere is great. But even better is within the metadata of the object, I could put things like offsets and I can read ranges, byte ranges. And that's part of the I think that's actually just standard within the S3 protocol, the byte range read. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing that um, I'm still just kind of wrapping my head around. Uh, and, and I haven't fully grokked myself. You know, the, 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 one of the things that, that I've picked up on in our conversations uh, over the years is that, you know, when you make this shift to an object store, you're not only talking about the data itself, uh, but, but often you start to leverage the metadata engine that's part of that object storage system as part of what your application does. So it's not just like a data persistence repository but it also becomes part of like how this thing behaves you know using those those extended attributes that 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 are part of that so it's it's not a one for one you know if you're an enterprise storage guy and you've been doing faz and data on tap your entire life you know e series you know you know the competition and all this stuff you know it's not as simple as just picking up you know the 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 latest web scale bits uh, and installing it and going well it's storage right uh, there there is a learning curve there that that admittedly i myself am am still trying to wrap my head around yeah, I mean, one of the challenges, and, and, and honestly, one of the reasons that there's been, everyone's talked about object storage for the last few years. You yeah. know, they, they, it's this wave, it's going to be, you know, everything's going to object. Why hasn't it gone faster? Well, because you don't interact with it using the way all the applications are written now. It's not a file-based thing. It doesn't use SIFs or NFS, though there's an exception we can talk about in a little bit. It um, doesn't use blocks. Um, it uses these RESTful object APIs, right? You know, like S3 or Swift or CDMI, which are kind of the, the standards. And in, in fact, Storage Grid WebScale supports all of those. Um, that's something new from the last time we spoke. Um, and that means, you know, we have to wait for ISVs to get on board. So we're seeing ISVs in different industries starting to adopt object APIs. 
and we're seeing ISVs in kind of horizontal areas like backup and archive, you know, they clearly see the, the huge value in, in object APIs, allowing people to use um, object stores that can live anywhere, whether it's public cloud, you know, on-prem cloud or, or wherever. So, so you mentioned video, right, and the media industry, and we've talked about backup before. We had Rachel Dines on the podcast, and and being able to back up from AltaVault into any S3 object store, storage grid certainly included in that. Uh, are there other use cases? How how are how are people using these with their applications? Are they being used for web applications? Uh, you know, traditional platform to client server type applications, or yeah, so more platform three. Um, so for those that don't know, you know, the, the reference you made, Platform 2, you know, the Platform 1 was mainframe, Platform 2 is client-server. Platform 3 are these applications that generally fit the kind of born-in-the-cloud kind of description. And, yeah. and most of them are object-based, right? Or mm -hmm. at least they're written in such a way where the business logic of the application and the data service and where the data model and data lives can be separated, right? Um, those types of things lend themselves fairly well to object storage. You know, traditional OLTP database types of apps, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to write those kinds of things if your storage thing doesn't allow appends or updates, right? <laughs> so so yeah. we, we tend to see, you know, if you look at things like major photo sharing sites, you know, where you have billions of, of these, you know, uh, photos kept by lots of people, those, those are all on object stores. Um, and, you know, because of the scalability and the ability of data independence from the application, all kinds of, of reasons. Um, but I used media and entertainment as an example. Um, there's lots of these verticals that we're seeing realization that object storage might be the way to go. I, I just got in last night from Houston where, um, you know, the United States and certainly a big chunk of the world's kind of oil and gas expertise is oh, located. Yeah. And and that oil and I, and that was more a educational trip for me to meet with a lot of major um, folks in that industry and talk to them about what are you doing and where do you see object storage fitting in your future and and to me I came away from it going wow this is the entertainment use case it, it's exactly the same I mean and there's a lot of you know don't get me wrong there's different app stacks and all that but if you look at you know the exploration side, the upstream side of oil and gas. They're generating these massive files, these seismic files. Those don't get changed. Yeah. Right. They get inter they get um, processed, and then that process creates yet other things, and then they get interpreted. So you could think of it almost like this massive media thing that's transcoded and and so on. But in this case, it's to go discover oil and gas, as opposed to the new Star Wars movie that you just saw. Right. Yeah, we had a uh, conversation with a gentleman at Insight uh, US who joined us on the Tech on Tap live stage, uh, who's who came who comes from the oil, oil and gas vertical and talked specifically to that. That you know the they, they got hit by surprise. You know, just anecdotally, they they had all this seismic data and and for years and years and years they were looking for the same thing. They were looking for a large chunk of fossil fuel that was in a pocket of sand or near a pocket of sand. 
um, because that that was the easiest way that we knew how to get to it. Along comes shale and 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 uh, vertical drilling technology, and all of a sudden they're going back through these massive seismic data sets, and they're looking for completely different things. Yep. Um, because we've got different ways of getting to it now. They can't ever delete any of that. Every single record they've ever recorded, at some point in time, is going to be critical to them finding that nest that next bit of of natural resources. Yeah, here's here's a piece of trivia for you too. Um, I might have said this in the last podcast too, because. Um, those geoseismic studies that were generated years and years ago are way better quality than the ones that they can do now. Really? Yeah. I, I didn't know that. You want to know why? Yes, very much so. Because we can't go running around blowing things up anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Okay, yeah, yeah. They used to, you know, throw bombs off the back of boats and blow up TNT out, and <laughs> now we have thumper trucks and, and, you know, a little more mature, non-destructive ways to go look for these things. And as a result, probably slightly less resolution, right? So, if you know, those, the, a lot of those surveys for various reasons yeah. are, can't be replaced, whether it's because of the resolution or because of geopolitical changes and not getting access to the, those areas anymore or, or whatever. So, so it's, it's critical that that data is never lost. So is, is that kind of like a – or would you consider that some good shorthand for, for identifying a use case where perhaps object is, is more appropriate? Uh, anytime you you have you you have a large large number of files uh, that have an indeterminate life lifespan, like you you really just don't know how long you're going to have to keep this data around. Yeah, I think um, large large number of files. That's certainly a key. Um, the file behavior being that it's written and then tends to be read in lots of different places by different people. That collaborative nature, that also mm, okay. points to object storage. And then when you get to the point where it's a large, large number of things and it has to be read by people in very different geographies, object storage becomes a, a very yeah, good play there as well. And they don't have to be big objects, right? I mean, we can do really cool things with big objects in, in storage grid web scale, but um, you know, there's, there's a lot of object stores that are... You know, um, gosh, I don't know. A, a PDF of a of a statement could be an object in an object store, and that's certainly not a big thing, right? So you you've mentioned the geographically diverse access. Can you can you expand on that some? Right, and you know, if 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 we're talking about a traditional NetApp, you know, cluster data on tap administrator, you're probably thinking something like SnapMirror, SnapVault, and replicating it around. But storage grid web scale doesn't work that way, if I understand correctly. Yeah, correct. So um, let's set the stage. How big can this thing be first, right? So a, an, a storage grid web scale environment can scale to 100 billion things spread in a single namespace across up to 16 data centers. And, you know, obviously you don't want to make 16 copies of everything so everyone can get it. Right. Yeah. And and that's kind of the traditional approach in a lot of other ways. If I need to get it from Chicago and New York... Um, then I'm going to put a copy in both places. Um, instead, what happens is the object store has access to the metadata everywhere to know where the closest copy of this object lives, right? E and even with storage grid web scale, we know, um, based on what you've told us when you configure the product, what are the most expensive networks and the cheapest networks in your environment connecting all of these places in the namespace. So we'll point you to the best place to get the object, both for you know, time to first bite as well as minimizing the cost of that transaction. I did not know that you guys had that in there. That that is 
Yeah, it's it called, makes uh, a ton of sense that, it's called to have link that cost feature. groups. Link cost groups. Yeah, it's uh, it's a capability we've had for a very long time. And, huh. And you know, as you start building these things, and especially when you start going around the world where there's dramatically different network costs, you know, all things being equal, I want to go down the cheap pipe, right? Yeah. So, so. Uh, how do, how do we do data protection then? Is it simply replicating multiple copies of the objects across those up to 16 data centers? Or is there is there sort of a more efficient way of doing yeah. that? Yeah, do we, do we just pick like four and blast it out and say, hey, get the nearest one? You know, How does this thing actually do it under the covers? Because 16 sites, 100 billion objects, we're talking about a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, and the answer is um, we do data protection any way you want to do data protection. And, and this comes back to that, um, the metadata that we discussed. Storage Grid WebScale has this, and this is really the crown jewels of the product. Whenever an object comes into the object store, you have the object itself, which might be that seismic data file or you know the, a clip from Star Wars. Yeah. And then with that is some collection of metadata. It might be really simple machine-generated data, like you know the, the name of it and how big it is. But it could also be very custom metadata in the form of key value pairs like project with project name or service and service level and, you know, gold, diamond, bronze, lead, whatever, you know, you define. Um, now, what Storage Grid WebScale does is it allows the administrator to build essentially a service catalog within the product that says, if you see something that has this metadata characteristic, this is what I want you to do. Mm. So as an example, you could say, all right, this object, maybe I'm a service provider. Yeah. Something comes in, and it has a key value pair with it, service level equals gold. Well, ooh, you know, for me, you know, the best service provider ever, service, you know, service level equals gold is going to translate to the behavior that I'm going to make a copy of it in these three data centers in the United States, uh, for 90 days. So three copies for 90 days. At day 91, I'm going to go down to one erasure-coded copy across these four other data centers and get rid of the replicas. A year later, I might make a copy to tape as an active tier or put it out into a public cloud. So that whole life cycle of the object, including, uh, to your question about how do we protect things, including how we protect it over time, which changes based on the needs of that service level, can be defined in the service catalog, and it's all implemented at the object level. So, you know, the short answer is, how do we protect things? Well, we can protect them via replicas. We can protect them via what we call hierarchical erasure coding, which is a, it's a mouthful, but it means we can do erasure coding essentially at the node level within our storage grid appliance to protect mm -hmm. against the most common failures, like a disk goes bad. But then we can also do geo-distributed erasure coding across, you know, choose how many data centers. You know, we support multiple geo-dispersal schemes. So, so can, you, can you elaborate on uh, what erasure coding is for those who might not know? Yeah, it, it, the, the way to think about it and explain it the, the easiest I've found is to say, uh, take a look at what problem it solves. So if you think of the kind of classic problem, I have three data centers, I have this really important object. I want this object to be available even if I lose any of those three data centers. Mm -hmm. You know, the classic way you solve that problem is what? Right. Replication. Me yeah. Replication, Replication, right? So 3x, yep. 3x the storage, right? What erasure coding does, let's take that object, and in the three example, three data centers, we'd probably do something like uh, we could call it six of nine or six plus three erasure coding would be the way you would describe it. 
I take that object, I break it into six pieces. Now I add three more pieces to the object in the form of three pieces of parity. And now I have nine pieces, 1.5x the size of the object total. Yeah. I put three pieces in one data center, three pieces in another, three pieces in the third. As long as I can get any three pieces, or, I'm sorry, any six pieces, I can rebuild the entire object. So what I've done now is I've solved that same problem that was 3x. I'm now doing it roughly 1.5x. And then we're talking about hundreds of billions of things. That's huge. Now, I'm sure you guys are kind of squinting and going, well, <laughs> you just described doing RAID over a wide area network, and that just really doesn't sound like a great idea, right? And, yeah. It, well, <laughs> well, I'm, 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 I'm somewhere in the middle, right? My, my whole thing with erasure coding the entire time has been that, uh, personally, I think that EC is, is going to win the day when it's all said and done. It just makes the most amount of sense. Uh, from an from effective, uh, efficiency, raw science point of view, it, it just gets more done with less physical resources than any other approach. The challenge has always been getting local performance on reads. Yeah, um, and th- yeah, two challenges, I would say. I would say local performance on reads, and, and why is that a challenge? It's a challenge because no single data center has a whole copy of the object. Yep. And then the other challenge is I don't want to do RAID reconstruction over a wide area network, so what happens when I lose a couple disks? Yeah. And, and we've solved both of those problems with the way we do things in storage grid web scale. So the way we solve the repair over the wide area network issue is we're doing local EC within the, within the storage node on E-series yeah. using that very special E-series EC capability that we refer to as dynamic disk pools, right? That's node-level EC, yep, right? absolutely. But then in the event that something catastrophic happens, I have that GOEC to fall back on. Now, what do we do about this read issue, right? Um, a lot of our competitors have real trouble with that. They do things called like an all-or-nothing transform, which means I'm not going to serve you the first byte of this huge object until I've rebuilt the whole thing. Mm. We don't do that. We start streaming the object to you as we're getting the chunks, right? Yeah, I heard, I heard earlier you mentioned uh, link for first byte. So, yeah. so that, that implied that the system had had that knowledge uh, between like the first packet delivered and the last. Yeah, and yeah. and here's something, and I I I wish I could explain how we do this, but somehow our development team and product managers have figured out we can actually do byte offset reads into a geo dispersed object. Yeah, sure, space magic. Let's yeah, go. Yeah. <laughs> it's the force. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, it's it, it's a, you know, and, and you're not going to use geodistributed EC for everything, right? Yeah. Um, it's really for things that are, you know, they're kind of at that cooler stage of their life. I can I can tolerate a little longer time to first bite, um, but, you know, I don't want to give up on that durability, right? I want to make sure that it's, it's there, even in the event of something very bad happening. So I'm curious, uh, in, in, in our example, uh, we mentioned, uh, you know, three sites, so a six over three. So, so I'm, I'm assuming that we would get there because, you know, the system would have a policy that says that this, this, this object, uh, based on the metadata, needs to live in three data centers. So we're going to go ahead and EC this out. If that policy was for four data centers, would that be a 12 over four? Is that, is that, is that how that works? Uh, yeah, so we support... <coughs> 
excuse me, we support multiple dispersals depending on the number of data centers that you want to support. Um, but it's actually simpler on the decision of where we're going to EC. Um, Storage Grid web, sales, web Scale is a totally software-defined product. Um, and these, even though underneath it you have these physical things like a Storage Grid appliance, a, a Storage Grid appliance is, at the end of the day, this this thing called a storage node in, yeah. in, in the scope of things. And these, these storage nodes, um, you can group them into logical pools. And these pools can be based on things like the grade of the storage. Maybe I make a fast storage pool or a slow storage pool. They could also be based on geography. Like these are my slow storage in EMEA. These are my fast storage in RTP. So it's very, lot. you know, it's, Software defined. Yeah. That's how we do EC2. We create EC pools. Oh. And when you put something in that EC pool, it, it knows what it needs to do. So you can have multiple EC pools spanning different data centers, different numbers of data centers. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing, which is very different approach. So I may jump the gun a little bit here, but that is really exciting because I also know in the background that we've changed how we deploy this thing a little bit as well, right? in that now you can deploy it as a set of OpenStack heat templates, right? Or So or I'm, not a, I'm not the super OpenStack expert. What the language I use to explain it, and no one's told me I'm wrong yet, and maybe it's the same thing that you just said, <laughs> is that we can, dis we can deploy in an open, a heat-orchestrated OpenStack environment. Yeah, so, but essentially, so we've had... We've had virtual appliances for storage grid web scale for a while now, um, but it's gotten a lot simpler with this release, right? Yeah, yeah, a few things. Um, and, and I'd also point out we didn't remove any of the other deployment capabilities, right? We continue to add more, more ways for people to deploy it. So we've always had the ability to deploy in VMware in, as a collection of ESX yep. you know, um, VMs. Uh, what you're referring to is we now have the ability to deploy in KVM in a heat-orchestrated installation process in OpenStack. What's even more exciting, actually, is what's in running in that KVM hypervisor. It's not just this Linux OS running storage grid software. It's this Linux OS running Storage Grid as a Docker container, which you know yeah. I, I know that gets you That's excited. That's why you <laughs> brought it up. Okay, um, we so, we found the source of this question. Yeah, yeah. No, I uh, I've been talking with Dave Schmidt and Morgan Mears and company, right, the engineering team about this for some time, and I've been like bouncing in my chair for for months to be able to talk about this stuff, and you know it's it's really exciting that you know especially when you take into account what you were just saying in that. You know, that, that erasure coding and all of those algorithms take into account the class of storage and where it's at and all of these other things. So I can deploy it as a virtual appliance into my data center that's, you know, maybe on the other side of the country. And that acts as just a, a, a local access node, quote unquote local, for maybe a development team over there. But in my actual physical data center, where the majority of my team sits, I have physical appliances. And... You know, maybe I have a tertiary site that just has a couple of VMware, you know, ESXi servers, and I can deploy onto that as well. And everybody can participate in this, you know, massive ecosystem and have access to the data that they need. Yeah, and then right now, and and uh, important thing you called out there too is 
we have these multiple ways of deploying, right? You know, ESX, the purpose-built appliances based on the E-Series product, and now that KVM OpenStack deployment methodology. Um, nothing, there's no restrictions that everything has to be homogeneous, right? Yeah. Um, because we think... One of the things, you know, and this comes from our legacy of, or I should say experience, uh, of working in the healthcare industry with the storage grid product is if you're a, a healthcare IT guy and someone hands you an X-ray to store, the assumption you make is every single piece of my IT infrastructure is going to be refreshed multiple times by the time I'm allowed to get rid of this thing. Yep. So, you know, the storage grid development team from the very get-go built a product that was made to evolve over time. I mean, it was made to adapt to, you know, rolling non-disruptive upgrades to allow the addition of data centers, the, you know, the removal of storage and and with that different deployment methodologies and this this docker thing you know the the docker capability within kvm right now you know i see this as a first step that you know at some point you know we uh, we ought to be able to say hey you know here's how you deploy storage grid now if you'd like you know use you know Kubernetes or one of these other million different you know docker orchestration things and deploy it as containers and you know, I, I think this is the path that we're on, it, it, and it just makes sense. I mean, you can't you can't go to an IT shop right now where they're not playing with container strategies. So I, I think we're ahead of the game right now, and we're going to continue to innovate there. Well, and I'll tell you what, you know, over the past 18 months, you know, 18 months ago, you know, we, we, we were sitting in here calling it object-oriented storage because we didn't know what the heck we were talking about, right? Um, you know, now... I run into just normal customers who bring it up. Uh, so so it, from from where I sit in the solution stack and the sales cycle, you know, my own experiences in this business, uh, object storage is is this thing that that is absolutely growing out. You know, it was niche. You know, it was it was the uh, it was as you said, it was the media and entertainment companies. It was the oil and gas, and it was healthcare. It was the it was the the the, the verticals that had this use case. Giant data repositories uh, with with a, a non-determined life cycle, right? Um, but but with the shift that the data archive life cycle has recently kind of gone through, um, and and you know this this ties back into our conversation with Rachel. Uh, Ra- Rachel Dines uh, is firmly of the opinion that you know forget about tape. You know, you should be sending your your long term archive to to object and and arguably to directly to the cloud, depending on 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 uh, what what kind of data it is and, and what your control. And how big you is. are, yeah. yeah, and how big yeah. you are. The cloud might be my cloud, right? And yeah, so that's where I wanted to go with this. I wanted to ask you if if you're actually seeing that, you know, because one of the things that I become aware of is is in EMEA. We there's just seems to be it's it, it appears that just like every account just stands up a terabyte of storage grid just 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 to get some object store on prem you know they're not going in going five hundred petabytes they're start they're starting pretty small but they're getting their feet wet with with what it's like to run an object uh, d- data repository yeah and I think that's um and and a lot of, you know those are. POCs largely, right? They're yeah. sandboxes and things, yep. and we want to make it very easy for people to do that. Um, I, the, but I think EMEA in general, you know, you in the subject of your own cloud versus some massive hyperscaler, 
Um, you know, there's certainly been changes around things like safe harbor that are promoting people to, th- you know, prompting people to think of where they're putting stuff. Um, and, you know, you can go through a lot of people's different spreadsheets and say, you know, is it economical to use the cloud uh, that I build myself, or is it more economical for me to use somebody else's cloud? And it, it depends who you are and how you do things. Absolutely, I, mean, I can I can show you two sheets. One that'll say I can do it way cheaper than I can using a, a cloud provider, and I could show you another sheet that says, "Boy, you know, it makes a lot more sense." Storage Grid lets you do either, right? We can tier out via those same policies to an external cloud. So, you know, you might have a policy that says. Hey, listen, for all of this data that has this metadata project name associated with it, it's not necessarily something I'm terribly concerned about it living in a public cloud. So, you know, tear it out here because at the moment the economics make sense. But I might have other data. Maybe it says region of source equals EMEA. I don't want to put it in the public cloud. I want to keep it close to me, and I don't want it going to the U.S. because I'm worried about this safe harbor stuff. Yeah, you know, we're we're very flexible. You know, policy driven. It's so. Do we, does the storage grid appliance then manage security? You know, encryption of those objects going up, and and will it do cross protocol? Like, can I can I store it in CDMI, for example, and it'll push into Amazon as S three? So right now, our tiering is via S three only. Um, but you know, what what how things are stored? They're stored as storage grid objects. So, you know. To be clear, when I say we tear it out to S3, um, to get that object back, it still has to come through the grid. So I can't tear it to, say, Amazon and then fire up an app in Amazon and go pull that object out without yeah. going through the grid. Yeah, that um, makes sense. But as far as encryption, yeah, we totally support encryption and you know both at rest and you know in flight as well as you know the the capabilities of the S3 and Swift and CDMI protocols in that in that regard as well. Well, uh, so uh, I asked that because, uh, you know, the reason why we're, we're holding off, we're going through a time warp on this particular episode is because of something that was just announced uh, in the last uh, really week or so of when this episode is actually going to be released. Right? Yeah. And, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump forward and say we just released it. Yeah. So <laughs> there you go. And, and, you know, honestly, I'm thinking back. I think we actually talked a little bit about this at Insight in EMEA um, in the form of a press release. Um, so what you're alluding to is the exception to the rule um, that I stated at the beginning, which is one of the reasons object storage is hard to get going with is, you know, you better have applications that speak S3 or Swift or CDMI. Not everybody has those. <laughs> yeah. So what we've announced and what's coming soon is called the file system bridge. And uh, we, we insist on calling it a file system bridge as opposed to a cloud gateway. Uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, and, and NetApp, we don't have anything against cloud gateways, right? AltaVault is a cloud gateway. It is a best yep. of breed. Absolutely. You know, you know yep. does, and what, what a lot of these cloud gateways have in common is they don't, they don't necessarily know what's behind them, right? When they send that S3 object out to the cloud, they don't know whether it's an on-performance cloud or, I'm sorry, on-premise cloud or, a, or one across a wide area network. So they make the lowest common denominator choice and do everything they can to make whatever they're sending out be really optimized. Like AltaVault does an amazing job of inline deduplication, compression, encryption, 
But the result of that is the objects that get put in the object store are not the individual files that came in to the AltaVault, right? They're, yeah. they're collections of very storage-efficient slabs of data. Now, the file system bridge makes the assumption that I'm speaking to Storage Grid WebScale. In fact, it's the only thing it works with. It, it's very tightly integrated with Storage Grid. And it's designed for the use case, not back up an archive like AltaVault. It's designed for the use case where I have this file-based application now. Yeah. I know I'm either going to develop it myself to go to object or my ISV is or something, but I know I'm going to be object. And when I get there, I don't want to have to re-ingest everything. So what this file system bridge does, it presents a SIFS or NFS file system. You can drop files in it. Those files are locally cached, but then they go out the back via S3 objects into the object store, in this case, storage grid web scale. But there's a one-to-one correspondence. This file is this S3 object, and it gives you the ability to put it in to the file system or take it out via the file system, but I can also take it out via an S3 call directly out of the object store. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so we call it file object duality. And huh. um, this, is a, this is a way to get people moving quicker without the pain of you know, having to re-ingest all these massive amounts of data as their applications move to that next generation object-based architecture. So does this mean that I can go run SQL Server on top of my uh, storage grid web scale now? <laughs> we covered that already. Yeah, you obviously no. were not paying attention. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I, I, I actually didn't know anything about this. I'm the only one in the room who didn't, but that's okay. Um, I, I think that is incredibly com- compelling and interesting. Uh, uh, Andrew and I have been having this conversation for almost a decade at this point that uh, putting POSIX in front of object or tape is has always been this panacea thing that IT's been always... We, when you sit down with an IT shop, they almost always end up there, right? I just want to have this massive data repository thing that's super cheap and it's got data lifecycle baked into it, policy-based management perhaps, uh, and then just give me a way to put file services in front of it and I'll just have my users just save stuff to it. Yeah. And in the back end, I'll, I'll tier it off onto the uh, cost-effective you know, storage media. Uh, in practice, those systems have always had incredible challenges. Uh, and Ben, as someone who ran one once, uh, it have been a bear. So I, I am personally very interested to, to learn more about this and, and the types of use cases uh, where we're envisioning it. Yeah, and, and, and the types of use cases I think of, you know, regardless of vertical, they're generally these uh, large file-based content repositories that people know are going to be moving to object over time, so they're going to get the value out of that duality. If if they if they never intended to uh, to to do the full up conversion, they were just looking for a cheap way to, to store a, a large amount of files. Uh, was would that be something where you would point them at the gateway, or is that is that more of uh, an alt vault cloud gateway thing? I, you know, I think there's you you have to ask a few follow up questions, right? What's the nature of the application? Are you going to be doing a one write and lots and lots mm, of reads? Okay. That might make sense with the. With the gateway, if it yeah. tends to be more looking like a backup or archive workflow, I boy, AltaVault is there. I mean, you were asking, where are we successful? Um, we've done a lot of uh, business with AltaVault and Storage Grid WebScale, both in service provider as well as in very large enterprises. 
and that the products just work together, including NetApp, right? Um, we drink our own champagne, I think, is the fancy way of saying that we're actually uh, using this solution in-house at NetApp. Yeah, we got uh, customer one in uh, NetApp on NetApp in here uh, right before the Christmas break last year uh, and sat down and, and uh Storage Group came up. We found out that they were they're in the middle of uh, internal rollout, standing up their own web scale implementation, getting Altvault, getting all that stuff up and running. So absolutely, they're they're drinking that champagne yep. uh, and and talking to Eduardo. So far, uh, he he he's loving it. So you know, I I wish I and I'm a broken record at this point. How many times have I said this on this on the podcast? I wish I had an excuse to go play with Storage Grid. I've <laughs> I've been trying to like. Put it into. I've been adding it randomly to like FlexPod projects just to see if I can get it approved. Just because I want to play with it. That's yeah. that's all it comes down to. I think it's super neat. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the appliances uh, and what we've done there, taking and combining an E-series node with the storage grid node, making it super simple to deploy and provision. Uh, it, it it removes a lot of that complexity. Uh, I'm a huge fan of 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 how we approach the the cost and the tiering. Uh, for, from a business perspective, you know, not a lot of people think about this, but you know, Duncan, you mentioned a fast tier or a slow tier. Object doesn't have to be slow. It's not always cheap. It can be performant. It just has a different read write pattern. You know, you you can deploy yeah. Object on Flash. People do it. You know, it, it it's not really that that part of the discussion. It's it's more about how is it accessed and and what is the the, the total life cycle going to be. Yeah, and I, and I think one of the differentiators for when we talk about storage grid web scale, you know, going back to the policy stuff again, the ability to treat um, different workloads in these environments differently, whether it's differently on how we're protecting it or how we're delivering performance or whatever, this makes this object store something that's more about get the object in the right place geographically at the right tier of storage at the right time, protected at the right level at any given moment, as opposed to, you know, kind of the legacy view of object storage, which is, oh, go put that in that big, giant, cheap bucket of stuff, which is the way people kind of thought about object storage in the past. We are not that. We can be, but we can be so much more when you use that service catalog capability and policies. Absolutely. Uh, we're, we're, we're starting to wind down. We're coming up at the top of our hour. Uh, Duncan, is there anything that, that you feel like we, we haven't really touched on that, that uh, we should get into, features of the product or, or, or uh, you know, use cases, that a- anything at all you want to take a swing at before, before we put a bow on it? Yeah, I'd say a couple things. Um, to the NetApp partners and the NetApp folks that are listening um, that want to get their hands on this, it is in Lab on Demand or whatever we call that. Yeah, Lab on Demand. Lab on Demand. Um, uh, you know, and, and to the customers, there's, you know, we are continuing to talk a lot about this and, and teach classes on it and inside and so on. And, and reach out to your field teams. If you have interest in this, you know, you don't have to have a, you know, a petabyte waiting to go. They'd be happy to help you out the way a lot of our EMEA teams have worked to help people, you know, get a small taste of this to, to understand. And, you know, we know people want to understand this technology before they can see where the use cases are. Um, I'd also say don't wait for me to be on here a year from now um, to talk about what's new in the product. Um, I was on, it was probably just about a year ago, and we've done three releases since then. So this is a very agile development team. Oh, yeah. Uh, we are doing, 
you know, roughly a release, a full feature release with, you know, these cool capabilities like, you know, the KVM, the OpenStack, the new Swift API, the hierarchical erasure encoding, all of those have come since the last time we spoke. So, um, you know, keep your eyes open. Um, yeah, last time we, we were sitting on S3. I remember last time when you came on, uh, the big secret that we that we weren't allowed to talk about yet was the fact that S3 was coming around the corner. Now that's just in the rearview mirror, just a, a checkbox. Yeah. yeah, we've got that. We're on to the next one. And we've added a lot of capabilities to that S3 implementation even since then. You know, multi-part upload to deal with, you know, high performance on uploading large objects, things like that. Um, you know, new multi-tenancy capabilities. So there, it's there there's a lot more than an hour's worth of stuff that we could talk about um and i'd urge people to you know get on www.netapp.com and take a look get on the communities ask questions um we've got a lot of experts out there that are happy to help so duncan is there uh is there any way that people can reach out to you do you want people reaching out to you <laughs> <laughs> uh it, it, twitter or any of the other social media type things to keep up with uh what what and where in the world is duncan yeah i'm not a big twitter guy i know i should be um we do have a storage grid um twitter handle i know um and i think it's storage grid web scale you know um you know i all the you can people can reach out to me that's fine yeah, yeah i'm, yeah, I'm just uh, yeah I, i'm it's it's duncan He's that's me o, I, you know. og netapp been around forever <laughs> everyone knows him super yeah. friendly easy to get a hold of duncan dot more guys yeah. uh, if you haven't figured out the secret code <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> So I just want to point out uh, here now that we're at the end of it that uh, I, I cannot go through a Duncan meeting without bringing up Macau and the stage. <laughs> so uh, mission accomplished. We don't have to go over it at all any more than that. But, uh, uh, I've done four insights since then with no broken bones or ambulance rides. No, so, so I think we can leave that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, I remember that. <laughs> so thank you very much for coming on, Duncan. Uh, really, really great information. Um, for those of uh, those of you who are listening, we'll be sure to include in the show notes a uh, link to the Twitter account for Storage Grid WebScale, as well as uh, the relevant TRs and other pertinent information. Yeah, for sure. And if you guys, uh, if this is the first time you've ever heard about Storage Grid WebScale uh, and and found yourself surprised to learn that NetApp has an object storage solution, uh, go 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 reach out there and get in, start reading up because I'm telling you, this thing's going to blow the doors off it. It's it's an incredibly uh, compelling uh, product. You and your team have just just doing an outstanding job across the board, Duncan. Yeah, thanks. And and it is certainly the team. I <laughs> I'm wearing the headphones, but they built the product. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it's fun to have good things to talk about. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email at podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or SoundCloud via Tech on Tap, or you can go to techontappodcast.com. If you'd like the show today, please leave us a review. We would appreciate it. On behalf of the entire NetApp Tech on Tap team, I would like to personally thank Duncan Moore for joining us this week. And as always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. So what do you think? Do we pull it off? I think we pulled it off. We had no adult supervision today, dude. Uh, you know, that kind of worries me. Um, you know, so, uh, uh, Justin, I know you're not here, but sorry in advance for all me? the uh, cursing and all the mistakes and everything oh, yeah. else that you're going to have to edit out. You know, uh, good luck, buddy. Woo-hoo.